I'm Alistair Stevens. I'm Elizabeth Ray. And Tom Cruise is Brian Flanagan in Cocktail. It's March 31st, 1981, and the 53rd Academy Awards have just ended. Robert Redford's Ordinary People, starring Timothy Hutton, was a big winner. Sissy Spacek wins Best Actress for Coal Miner's Daughter. De Niro wins Best Actor for Raging Bull. But far from the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, where the ceremony was held, in a living room in a regular house in the Hollywood Hills, publicist and copywriter John J.B. Wilson passes out nomination cards to a group of 35 friends who have gathered for a potluck dinner and to watch the Oscars on television. He then puts on a cheap tuxedo, gets behind a cardboard lectern, and reads the winners as voted by his friends. This is the first Golden Raspberry Award ceremony, perhaps better known as the Razzies. (laughs) This sarcastic celebration of everything bad in Hollywood immediately gets the public's attention. It grows, and it grows year by year, now rescheduled so that it happens before the Academy Awards, rather than competing for that news cycle. In 1996, Paul Verhoeven is the first person to attend the ceremony in person to accept Worst Picture and Worst Director (laughs) awards, very well deserved, deserved. for showgirls. (laughs) The Razzies were established as a perennial festival of snark and of satire, an opportunity for people on the periphery of the industry to throw stones at those glass houses. Mm. And maybe there's nothing wrong, in theory with a little friendly teasing, with a little affectionate poking at the flaws and the foibles of the medium and the industry that we love. But as is often the case, when people are not only permitted to be publicly critical, but are praised for the intensity and the flamboyance and the excess of their criticism, it doesn't take long before things get very ugly. Mm. The Razzies disproportionately nominate films aimed at black and female audiences. There is no requirement for Razzie voters to actually watch the films for which they are voting, which means that the consensus is established early and rarely shows either originality or thought. In 2018, writing for GQ, Scott Meslow summed it up. Quote, You can basically divide the Razzie's most hated movies into three categories. Big, mediocre blockbusters, movies starring and targeted at women, and movies made by Tyler Perry. So the Razzies are, in order, pretty lazy, very sexist, and a little racist. End quote. But besides the casual and sanctioned misogyny and racism, the real consequence of something like the Razzies is that we turn unsuccessful art into nothing more than a punchline. This movie is bad lol becomes axiomatic. It's true because it's true, and that's all that it is. There are 60 actors listed on the IMDb entry for Cocktail. 60. There are 150 members of the crew, from director Roger Donaldson down to Alan E. Taylor. Oh, you know Alan E. Taylor, the production accountant, famed throughout the industry, I'm sure. And all that work, all that effort, all those great choices and calamitous choices and disasters, they have been reduced by the critical discourse to a smirk and a shrug. All of this is by means of a preamble, Elizabeth, to explain why I have spent so much time in the last two days researching cocktail. (laughs) And yet I have yielded far less valuable information for this episode of The Last Star in Hollywood than any other. This film just isn't talked about. It is mm. a punchline. It is 8%. You look this up. 8% on Rotten Tomatoes? Nine. Nine percent. Yeah, but still. That is inaccurate. Yeah. I mean, not to jump the gun, this is not a good film. You no, know, it's, it's not a great movie, but... It's funny, I mentioned at work last night to one of my regulars that I had just watched Cocktail and was going to be recording a podcast about it. And she was like, oh my god, I love that movie! 
And I was surprised by that. And I was like, oh, sure. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it's not a good movie, but it's fun. And she looked actually maybe offended that I said it wasn't a good movie. <laughs> I would put $20 on the bar right now to say that she was remembering the first act. Oh, sure. Because right? our listeners over in the Discord, people that we have talked to in real life, you and I personally mm -hmm. have all had exactly the same experience, which is we have a faint recollection of the first act and it's pretty enjoyable. Yeah. And nothing that comes thereafter leaves any impression whatsoever on the memory. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's true. I had watched it a couple of years ago. I think the only other thing that stuck with me was Doug Coughlin's really horrific suicide. Sudden and graphic demise. Yeah. Yes. Very, very graphic. Very, Unnecessarily yes. graphic. So as soon as I saw his face, I was like, oh, dip. I remember this. Am yeah. I right in remembering that we watched Cocktail a couple of years ago because I told you it was really good and that we should watch it? I mean... <laughs> Having remembered the first act and nothing thereafter? That it was fun. Yeah. I mean, it's when I was first starting at... Uh, I, I work at a craft cocktail bar, so I'm very serious about cocktails. So this was kind of like a fun, funny, oh, let's watch this movie about sure. bartending. Let's and, take uh, our work home with us, why don't we? <laughs> Sounds like us. Yeah. <laughs> What's stunning, though, is how little an impression this film has left on the media landscape. Yeah. This is the ninth most successful film of its year. It makes more money than Beetlejuice. It makes more money Whoa. than A Fish Called Wanda. Whoa. More money than Willow. More than Young Shut Guns. Up. Broadcast News, Wall Street, Gorillas in the Mist, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. It makes more money than That's all of insane. those films. And has a fraction of the cultural footprint. It's sad. Honestly, because clearly some bizarre choices happened in the production clearly. of this film, yeah. and I would love to know more about them. There are bizarre choices made between the construction of the trailer and the film. There's a really valuable extra scene contained in that trailer that does not appear in the film and motivates something very crucial right at the end of the movie. Wow. We'll maybe talk about that when we get to it, but okay. I'm not letting you off the hook. It's trailer game time. <laughs> okay. Let's get into it. Are you ready? <laughs> sure, sure. Tom Cruise is Brian, a bartender poet. He wanted to go to Wall Street, but wouldn't you know it, the man has no talent for making the money, and so he is left with chasing the honeys. <laughs> Elizabeth Shue could do better, you know. And here comes Doug Coughlin taking over the show. He's being an asshole, misogynist prick, but he's our mentor even though he's a dick. <laughs> On we trod through an ugly Manhattan because it's definitely Toronto wrapped up in satin. We follow Tom's losses. We follow his wins through breakups and suicides and suddenly twins. <laughs> it's cocktail, y'all, coming this summer. Cocktail begins with writer and former bartender Haywood Gould. Born in 1942 in New York City, Gould wrote stories and screenplays but struggled through the first part of his career to get any attention. Besides Cocktail, he is probably most famous for adapting the Ira Levin novel The Boys from Brazil in 1978 about a Nazi plot in Paraguay in the Damn. 1970s. Yeah. Between 1969 and 1981, Gould works as a bartender in New York City, by his account, up and down, east and west. He finally quits to move into writing full-time. His career is finally beginning to move, mostly off the success of The Boys from Brazil, in 1983. And he starts writing a semi-autobiographical novel 
pulling together characters and experiences from his real life and adapting them, synthesizing them into this squalid, bleak, mm. shot glass romantic story of life behind the bar. That book is Cocktail. It is published in 1984. In an interview in 2013, Gould outlined why bartenders are so important and why he wanted to write the book in the first place. Quote, Bartenders were the aristocrats of the working class. They That's didn't a line in the movie. It, so much of what he says <laughs> is a line in the movie. <laughs> okay. Quote, they didn't make as much money as masons or carpenters, but they had more prestige. Nobody cares what a bricklayer thinks of them or if the plumber calls them by their first name. End quote. Mm. Here's the thing. The book is available for free through the Internet Archive, and the link will be in the show notes because I'm a professional, but you should not read it. It is just kind of bad. It has a bad-tempered, hungover yeah. kind of swagger to it, and the writing is constantly, always at an 11. It is so thunderous and so overblown that it can trick you momentarily into thinking that it is being profound, mm -hmm. but really it is just as big as it can possibly be. It's all cynicism and self-loathing and no substance. Yeah. The Brian Flanagan that we meet in the book is a very different kind of Brian Flanagan. He is the Coughlin character, really. He oh, is he's even worse. 40 years old and just not very attractive, and just, but that's the mm -hmm. protagonist of our book. Hmm. Like the movie, the protagonist fancies himself a, a writer and a poet, and the book continually praises his writing without any kind of self-awareness or irony, the author praising himself and his own ability. Oh, yuck. Yeah. So as overwritten as the movie is in parts, and you're right, there are a lot of echoes between mm -hmm. the text of the book and the dialogue of the movie, because the movie is adapted by Haywood Gould, too. As overwritten as the movie is in parts, it is much, much worse without the, the, the mediating objectivity of the camera. I mean, imagine being in that guy's head for 350 oh, pages. No, I'm thank you. I'm going to give myself one quote. I originally pulled a lot from the book and then cut it all <laughs> because I just didn't want to read it all. But I will use this quote. This is from page three of the novel. This is the introduction of our lead character. Quote, Permit me to introduce myself. I am Brian Flanagan, resort bartender extraordinaire. I wander the watering spots, dealing in anecdote fodder, selling a dab of color to the drab, a bit of wit to the wordless, kindly counselor, stern disciplinarian, gentle declarations are a side specialty. A man oh. of many parts, a few of which have loosened over the years. End quote. And ugh is right. <laughs> this is not the most odious example from the book. This is okay. just the first one. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of skirt-chasing misogyny in this movie that I imagine comes straight from this guy's actual heart. But at least in the closing pages of the book, being the good Irish Catholic boy that he is, he goes to confession and is absolved of all of his of sins course. by, oh no, no, by Jesus Christ himself, <laughs> who appears in the confessional and absolves him. They never say outright that Brian Flanagan is Irish Catholic. They say that he's Irish. We've got like his uncle Pat who owns the Irish pub. So we know that he is. And he he feigns the terrible Irish accent in the last bit. Anyway, all that to say, he never mentions Catholicism. But the Catholic guilt is like so obviously a part of his character. It's so deeply entrenched. But it's not mentioned as such. They that's just a, call it a conscience. But it's a like really good not point. a conscience. It's guilt. That's different. Yeah. And refracted through that weird moral landscape of the 1980s where what is good and what is bad is is delineated by what you can get away with sure you know we're, we're in a very mm -hmm. relativistic moral phase in yeah, american culture yeah. there especially around wall street 
So the book gets some attention, because anything with that much voice will get some kind of attention. Universal picks up the option, hiring Gould to write the script. He does, and Universal immediately puts the project in turnaround, telling Gould yep. that the main character is fundamentally unlikable. A fucking man. I'm so glad someone said it. And then they try to fix it, and this That's is the movie we got? Holy shit. One. Okay. <laughs> Gould rewrites the script, then rewrites it again, but Universal has lost interest. Disney picks it up, still on the hunt for That's titles right. to release Disney's under its Touchstone to label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Immediately has the same fight with Gold. Immediately says, obviously this character is unlikable. We need rewrites. You need to make him younger. You need to make him more likable. Yeah. Gradually, gradually, gradually they begin to move the needle on that character. According to Gold, he wrote 40 drafts wow. of that script. And this is what we have at the end of those Oh my drafts. God, this is the nicest we could make him. Yeah. Wow. That's it a is shame. unclear because of the paucity of information, the scarcity of information online about this film, it's mm -hmm. unclear at exactly what point Cruz gets involved. Mm -hmm. There is speculation that Disney gets this script from Universal because they want to make it with Cruz and Newman, writing off the back of the success of The Color of Money. Oh, which that would, would make sense. Kind of makes sure. sense. You just yeah. had a huge hit. Two years later, you can come back with the same actors, kind of recapitulate some of that it's, energy. It's a similar energy. Yeah, yeah. sure. What we do know for sure is that the character of Brian Flanagan is changed even more when Cruz comes on board. He's made even younger. He's made, well, in theory at least, more charming. Mm -hmm. In an interview at the Sydney Film Festival in 2012, Brian Brown, who plays Coughlin, is complimentary about Cruz, but says the original script, which was darker and focused on the cult of celebrity, was turned into a, quote, much slighter movie because of Cruz's movie star status. Hmm. Callie Lynch, in fact, who plays the very beautiful Carrie Cochran, yes. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, would later say that Disney reshot a lot of the bar scenes after principal photography was over, adding in just much more flair and removing the emotional heart of the film and both the arc and backstory for her character. Now, oh. True enough. Her character has neither an arc or a backstory no. in the finished film. I don't know how much there was in the original script. Let's take a momentary detour to talk about cocktail culture in the 1980s. Oh, man, that's a bleak place to go, too. But it's all right, I'm here for it. Bad place. It's a bad time. <laughs> we should give some context, though. Let's do yes. all of cocktail history in three minutes. What do you say? <laughs> I love it. Let's go. Cocktails come from the early 19th century. The first extant mention is in the Balance and Columbian Repository of Hudson, New York. Obviously, the title of a newspaper. Who would think it was anything else? <laughs> which defined the cocktail as, quote, a stimulating liquor composed of any kind of sugar, water, and bitters, vulgarly called a sling. The sling is technically a different thing because it doesn't include bitters, but this was the olden times. We were all playing fast and loose with the language. Speaking of language, there are two main theories about the origin of the word cocktail. The first is that it relates to the clipped tail of non-pedigree racehorses in the UK in the 18th century. Wow. The tail was described as cocked. They would clip the tail to show that it just wasn't a pedigree, so you couldn't sell it as a pedigree oh, horse. Oh, uh-huh. So those tails were described as cocked, indicating a mixed parentage, thus cocktail oh, for a mixed, mixed drink. drink. Okay, okay. That's one theory. I don't like that one. I prefer the second <laughs> theory, which is that it's an anglicized form of the French word coquetier, meaning an egg cup or other small vessel. We do know that the famous Amity Peychaud in oh, New Orleans, the, the bitters, yes, apothecary yes, yes. of mm -hmm. New Orleans, would drink cocktails out of a small egg cup. Ah, okay. Technically, the word cocktail is attested from like 20 years before Peychaud is around. Uh, but also, who says that he's the first one to think of doing that? Mm -hmm. So I like it. Just a small glass. That's an <laughs> elegant solution. 
So through the 19th century, we are basically adding sugar and bitters to liquor to make it more palatable. In 1871, we get the Corpse Reviver. In 1884, the Manhattan. In 1887, Jerry the Professor Thomas publishes the first dry martini recipe in his book, Mm. The Bartender's Guide, or How to Mix All Kinds of Plain and Fancy Drinks. (laughs) Titles were just good back in the olden days. In 1895, we codify the Old Fashioned, a response to the improved whiskey cocktail, which had supplanted the original sugars and bitters variety. In the 20th century, prohibition changes the rules in the Mm -hmm. U.S., and we begin to see the development of cocktail culture in London and in Paris, while in the U.S., bartenders are inventing powerfully flavored fruity drinks to mask the taste of that illegal, illegal liquor. (laughs) Bad, bad bathtub, (laughs) Dan. By the end of prohibition, America has developed quite the taste for these fruity, syrupy drinks. Mm -hmm. And alongside the reintroduction of the classics post-prohibition, as well as new recipes from across the Atlantic, we see the rise of tiki culture in the 50s and Mm -hmm. 60s. I should say, shout out to the Vukare, my favorite cocktail, which was first stirred in the 1930s by Walter Bergeron, a bartender at New Orleans' legendary Carousel Bar. Gorgeous. Vukare is a very good drink. Very good drink. (laughs) Completely agree. The 1970s see a shift back toward the classics. We start stripping out some of those tiki elements and we go back to martinis and old fashions and Manhattans. But the 1980s introduces an era of absolute excess. On the one hand, we are introducing a whole new line of large, sweet, vibrantly colored, sugared rim glasses covered in fruit and umbrellas and all kinds of other distractions. The other kind of excess that we see in the 1980s is this kind of masculine desire to prove your capability by getting as drunk as possible at lunch. So even the classic cocktails are getting much, much larger and much, much more potent. They mention in this movie a vodka martini with a Pernod float, which you do not want. Pernod is just like an off-brand absinthe. Yes. That is just and nasty fuck-up juice. That's just going to mess you up. Those people at home who may not be on the inside track of cocktail culture, what is a vodka martini? What are the ingredients of a vodka martini? Oh, this is Okay, this is one of those things. A classic where, vodka martini? <laughs> yeah, a classic vodka martini might have uh, dry vermouth as well as vodka, but most places, including my place, if you ask for a vodka martini, you just get cold cold vodka we just shake it up with ice for a good long time until it's so cold it hurts our hand and then we tip it back into the glass we don't double strain it so all the ice chippies float on top you get an olive or you get a lemon zest whichever you prefer and then out it goes but that is just a glass of booze it's just that's it yeah it's just cold vodka yeah Three of those at lunch are going to change the course of your day for oh, yeah. sure. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> All of this excess is maybe best exemplified by what we might think of as the definitive 1980s cocktail. I mean, you've got your screwdrivers, you've got your sexes on the beach, you've got those yeah. things, yeah. you know, just, mm-hmm. just sugar and bright colors. But the real reigning queen of 1980s cocktails is the espresso martini. Ah, it's, now I, I do love an espresso martini. <laughs> I do kind of good it's is the good yeah. and i don't care for vodka so i'll slip out the vodka a lot of times for a different spirit but it's delicious the espresso martini is created in 83 by london-based bartender dick bradsell uh, as the famous story goes bradsell's working the bar a famous young model the identity of this famous young model has never been released but it's always given as a famous young model walks up to his bar and asks for elizabeth uh, something to wake me up and fuck me up exactly right <laughs> a famous story in cocktail <laughs> yes. circles so he mixes vodka with what is originally coffee liqueur. He uses Kahlua and Tia Maria oh, to make sure. a bad drink. That's going to be a bad drink. <laughs> but the evolutions of the espresso martini mm-hmm. can be pretty good. Yeah. That's a very basic opinion. 
I mean, of course, they're having such a renaissance right now. There's I'm, the, the joke is that at the end of every night, you make 35 espresso <laughs> martinis. And it's not far from the truth, for sure. Uh, but I mean, there's a reason for it. Cocktail yeah. culture, too, being what it is, it's easier to get a hold of great cold brew or have an espresso machine behind the bar, some people even. So I get it. I love it. I'm not throwing any shade. I don't mind making them. A major change from the book to the film, and in some ways this is just the primary legacy of this film, is the addition of flair. Despite oh, yeah. what you might read on the internet, Cocktail did not invent the idea of juggling bottles and shakers <laughs> behind the bar, though it nearly did. The aforementioned Jerry Thomas back in the 19th century would pour fiery torrents of liquor yeah. from one shaking tin to the other and then into the glass. So we've got a history of this kind of showmanship behind the bar. The modern version of Flair takes form in 1986 in that bastion of good taste and restraint, TGI Fridays. <laughs> Strongly and sternly encouraged to demonstrate their personalities behind the bar, no matter how artificial those personalities may have to be, many TGI Friday bartenders began to throw bottles and shakers and jiggers around with wild abandon. By the end of the year, the company held their first ever national flair bartending competition, known as the Bar Olympics, in Woodland Hills, California. The winner, John Brandy, was later approached by Touchstone to consult on cocktail and bring in some of that modern bartending style because they wanted it to feel contemporary and not set primarily in the mid-70s like Gould's original novel. Mm. Cruz, of course, practiced regularly and Naturally. mastered the basics, and the producers <laughs> were thrilled that the film would have that, that much-needed spectacle. From the 1980s, we really see the rise of what we might think of as modern cocktail culture, I guess, right? It's, it's Audrey Saunders and Dale DeGroff in the yes. 90s, and then we get those modern masterpieces in the 21st century. We get the paper plane and mm -hmm. we get the penicillin and we get the the porn star martini which i know is your very favorite drink. i don't care for the porn star martini but that's okay i do like a paper plane and we get most recently i suppose has been the rediscovery of all the various forms of the classic 1920s cocktail the negroni yeah. right? oh love a negroni yes love thank you negroni. stanley tucci for turning the world on to negronis <laughs> even though you shake them i forgive you with prosecco in it <laughs> anyway back to the film <laughs> Disney hires Roger Donaldson, a director from New Zealand who had recently broken into international films with the release of 1984's The Bounty, an adaptation of Mutiny on The Bounty, starring Anthony Hopkins as William Bly and Mel Gibson as Fletcher Christian. It was nominated for the Golden Palm at Cannes, and it seemed as though Donaldson, after directing only three movies in his native New Zealand, was ready for the big time, and it turns out he was. He would go on to direct Robin Williams in Cadillac Man in 1990, Willem Dafoe and Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio in White Sands in 92, Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger in The Getaway in 1994, Natasha Henstridge in Species in 1995, Pierce Brosnan and Linda Hamilton in Dante's Peak in 1997. His last feature film was a Pierce Brosnan movie, The November Man, in 2014, though in 2017, he directed a documentary about the life of Bruce McLaren. New Zealand motorsports legend, the person who founded the McLaren, McLaren Formula yeah. One team. Awesome. Do you know the story of Bruce McLaren? No. Uh -uh. We might watch that documentary then. Okay. I have no idea if it's good, but it is cool. a great story. Awesome. Least. I love that. The budget for this film is set at $20 million and production begins on October 26th, 1987. We shoot in New York, Toronto, 
and Port Antonio in Jamaica, by which I mean we shoot some exteriors in New York. Yeah. We shoot a lot in Toronto. That so doesn't surprise me. It yeah. makes so much sense. One of my earliest notes was, is this the ugliest New York City has ever looked? <laughs> and then when you mentioned it was shot in Toronto, I was like, there it is. Okay, now yeah. I get it. <laughs> I'm actually thrilled that we do shoot a little in New York City. We get those exteriors right at the beginning of the film, I think, right. are gorgeous. Oh, you think so? I do. I hmm. love when he's on the bus and we're coming across yeah. fields and you can see the Manhattan skyline in the distance. That is not a perspective on New York City no, that you see that you very, get often, very in film. often. That's true. You shoot that skyline from the water. You don't yeah. shoot it from the the heartland. You mm-hmm. know, I really love the way that he plays with differing perspectives in the first arc of the film. Yeah. I think that the first act of this film looks as good as any of the Tom Cruise movies that we've discussed so far. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not fair. quite as good as Legend. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that was very special. Jack Nicholson, Dustin Hoffman, Michael Caine, Dudley Moore, they are all considered for the role of Doug. Jennifer Grey, Demi Moore, and Heather Graham are all considered for Jordan. Brian Brown, though, gets the role of Doug Coughlin. He's born in Sydney, Australia in 1947. He gets involved in amateur theatre in his teen years and decides to move to Britain at the age of 25 to pursue a career on the stage. He has no leads, he has no contacts, he just Uh goes and does it. He gets some minor roles. He returns to Australia to become a member of the Genetian Theatre in Sydney. By the mid-70s, he's also appearing in film and television. He's earning consistently good reviews. He's building his reputation. He breaks big in 1981 after playing the lead in the TV miniseries A Town Like Alice, which gets an impressive audience in Britain and the United States. He then begins to work internationally, appearing in The Thornbirds in 1983, the Mm -hmm. British film Kim in 1984, and ultimately taking the lead role in the Robert Mandel movie FX in 1986, which is probably the thing for which he remains most famous, I would say. 86 is part of that American cultural obsession with Australia. 86 is the year of Crocodile Dundee. Oh, yeah. So we're suddenly bringing in a lot of Australian actors Mm -hmm. to... To exploit that, honestly, to ruthlessly <laughs> right. exploit yes. that odd cultural Sounds blip like here in mm-hmm. the U.S. The same year as Cocktail 2, he will appear with Sigourney Weaver in Gorillas in the Mist, making 88 an undeniable high point in his wow. career. What do you think of Brian Brown in this film? Uh, I think that he is good. I think the character is reprehensible and hard to watch and Absolutely. continue to listen to. But the performance is undeniably great. That is kind of the thing that he does, I think, throughout his entire yeah. career is be very difficult very kind of superficially challenging to the audience, hmm. but deep down has a charm. Has He has an amazing ability to make sudden eye contact with someone. And we see this even in Cocktail. Mm-hmm. He will suddenly make eye contact with another character or almost with the camera. And suddenly he is all charm. Hmm. It is just yeah. so warm and, and effervescent. I, mm-hmm. I really enjoy his performance here, yeah. even when the film kind of loses track of him. Elizabeth Shue, meanwhile, is born in 1963 in Wilmington, Delaware. She begins acting in TV commercials in high school, including high-profile ads for Burger King with her Back to the Future 2 and 3 co-star, Leah Thompson. She goes on to attend Wellesley College, then transfers to Harvard in 1985. You go, girl. But she leaves one semester before she's due to graduate with a degree in political science because her acting career is going so well, exactly like Like Meg Ryan. Oh, yeah. Who we discussed in the Top Gun episode. Yes. Apparently, if you want to be pretty successful in the 90s, you just have to bail on your college career one semester (laughs) before you graduate. Unlike Meg Ryan, Elizabeth Shue does go back a decade later and completes her undergraduate studies. Good for her. 
She makes her feature debut as Allie in The Karate Kid in 1984. In 87, she stars in Adventures in Babysitting, which is a huge hit. love Adventures in Babysitting. After Cocktail, she'll replace Claudia Wells as Jennifer Parker in the two Back to the Future sequels. She debuts on Broadway. She works consistently on stage and in film until 1995 when she is nominated for a Best Actress Oscar for her work in Leaving Las Vegas opposite Nicolas Cage. From there, she stars in The Saint with Val Kilmer in mm, 1997. Yeah. She's the narrator in Tuck Everlasting in 2002. Whoa. And then she does three seasons of CSI, which seems crazy. Like late wow, era, like yeah. 12, 13, and 14 of CSI opposite Ted Danson. Wow. Since 1994, she has been married to Davis Guggenheim, a TV and documentary producer. What Very do you nice. think of Elizabeth Shue in this film? Oh, I think she's terrific. She's the best part of it for sure for me. I also feel like there, I'm sure that this didn't come up in your research because there was so little to find, but I feel like some woman got a hold of the script and did punch ups for her. She gets a lot of lines where she pushes back against the misogyny and where she really comes out strong. Ultimately, her character arc is not in yes. any way feminist, but her individual lines often are. And that makes, that makes me think that a woman got a hold of the script at some point. I don't know whether anyone took a look at this script. Certainly no one else is credited besides Haywood Gould, though, as we've discussed over the last few episodes in particular, that doesn't mean anything right, in Hollywood. Right, it really doesn't, no. I can tell you that a lot of the dialogue that Jordan gets, who is just given the name Mooney, her last name is used exclusively in the book, a lot of that dialogue is preserved into the script. So either it has been changed at some point or Elizabeth Shue herself is taking that off of the page and imbuing it with a lot more warmth and playfulness. In the book, all of the female characters are shrewish and unsympathetic harridans. They are oh, all very no. hard-edged. Yeah. I really do like most of the women in the movie, which is interesting. Yeah, they just yeah. don't get a whole lot of play. They or, and And of course, their characters are solely in service to the men around them, which is too bad. But I even like at, at the end point when Elizabeth Shue, when, when Jordan leaves, you know, her beautiful Park Avenue home with her parents to follow this idiot bartender guy into the elevator. She looks miserable. Yeah. And I really like that yeah. choice from Elizabeth Shue where she's like, God damn it, I love this asshole, and I guess I'm going to follow him. And you, it, there's a sadness there. That is so emblematic, though. You're right, of the way that the film treats women in particular. Mm. Because the last thing her father says to her is, you're on your own. And she doesn't even get to respond. Nope. Because Flanagan says, that's just how I like it. That's just how I want it. I want her Ugh. on her own with me. It's gross. gross. It's terrible. <laughs> it's awful. But she does, at least, I, I, I would love to talk to her about it because I feel like she makes the choice where she's like, this is not a happy ending for this woman. Yeah. I like Elizabeth Shue a great deal. I've enjoyed her a lot in various films. And of course, she's in Back to the Future, which automatically I mean, puts her on my personal Hall of Fame forever. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel that she's ever had the role that really plays to her strengths as an actor. I think she's enormously empathetic on screen. Yeah. I think she can communicate great emotional depth. And what I've seen her do is generally very shallow. I need to yeah. go back and watch Leaving Las Vegas. It's been a long, long time since I've seen that And film. I've never seen Leaving Las Vegas, so I couldn't say. For me, certainly the times that she worked best in this film um, and movies that I remember her from are always when she's like light on her feet and funny certainly, and warm yeah. and engaging. Yeah. But when she has like the harder, more uh, emotional material to deal with, it's, it seems to fall a little flatter to yeah. me. Yeah. 
This film is originally scored by Maurice Jarret, a legendary French composer who had worked with Peter Weir and John Huston and Alfred Hitchcock, who had scored The Man Who Would Be King and Jesus of Nazareth and Witness, and who would this same year score Gorillas in the Mist, then go on to score Dead Poets Society and Ghost two years after Gosh. this. At the last minute, though, the producers decided that they were dissatisfied with his score, so they hired J. Peter Robinson to rescore the entire movie in three days. Which is why it sounds like that. I was going to say, I don't remember the score basically at all, except that it does vaguely have that synthy thing that 80s things do. It is synthy, generic, placeholder yeah. music. Uh, it is, I would like 40 minutes of average music, please. Yeah. Oh, it's, no. it's really not objectionable, and you can't blame the guy because say, three days is three it. days. Yeah. But yeah, not very strong, despite being coupled with an inexplicably popular soundtrack. I wondered about that. There are a lot of needle drops that are at least very recognizable as just songs. People are like, oh, hey, I like this song. When they come on in a bar, you know, you get yeah. Don't Worry, Be Happy. You get Kokomo. Yeah. I feel like there are others and now they're not oh, coming to mind. Tutti Fruity by Little Richard. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Kokomo yeah. written expressly for this film, which is kind of wild. Wow. I don't want to talk about Kokomo because I am a Beach Boys fan. <laughs> <laughs> And I feel that it would be demeaning to talk about Kokomo, which is just like the score, right? Can you give me four minutes of music? Yeah. Oh, what are you looking for? Are you looking for like a theme or a hook or, or anything like substantial? No, no, just four minutes of music will be fine. That's Kokomo. That's what you get. Mm-hmm. It's completely inoffensive, which makes it for a band that was as interesting and complex and progressive as the Beach Boys were capable of being. They certainly are. This is such a waste. Yeah. This is such like late period Beach Boys yeah. where it's just yeah. nothing. Is it strange that so many of the needle drops that we get in this movie are not from the 80s or even the 70s? They are real throwbacks. I kind of like that, especially because it does kind of speak to bar culture, I think. The music that plays in the bar where I work, at least, and we're a pretty, like, (laughs) is hip the word? Maybe not, but we're a cool place to go and hang out. But part part of that is that you hear music, like, you get some things that are modern, but mostly, like, we play a lot of... 90s music and sure. people are thrilled about that i guess that's true i hadn't thought yeah. of that. you're right yeah you kind of want to go into a place and feel a little bit nostalgic i think besides kokomo i guess the most present and contemporary song for the release of this film is addicted to love Robert addicted, Palmer's to love. addicted to sure, love which was really fun yeah the movie is released on july 29th 1988 to a 12 million dollar opening weekend knocking who framed roger rabbit off the top of the box office Weird. i think it is week four of who framed roger rabbit it would go on to make 78 million dollars despite the fact that it didn't even get international distribution that is 78 million dollars domestic right wow. here in the united states okay. off of a 20 million dollar budget this is by no means nope, a failure not a flop the critical response was bad mm. Ebert wrote, quote, the more you think about what happens in Cocktail, the more you realize how empty and fabricated it really is, end quote. And we have developed a bit of a tradition right here on the podcast where I will quote Roger Ebert and then we will say, well, I don't know. Maybe that's a little. No, 100 percent, my guy, 100 Mm percent. You nailed it. Yes. Hollow and fabricated. In a 1992 interview with Rolling Stone, Cruz said that it was not a crowning jewel in his filmography. (laughs) It's a very nice way of putting that. Not a crowning jewel. And to circle back to where we started, Cocktail is nominated for three Razzies. Cruz doesn't win Worst Actor, thanks to the intercession of Sylvester Stallone in Rambo 3. But the movie (laughs) does win Worst Screenplay and Worst Picture. Yikes. And that kind of seals its reputation forever. Not to give the Razzies the credit of sealing this film's reputation, but in general, the critical response seals the film's reputation forever. What is remembered is fragmentary and oftentimes 
quite good because we're remembering the high points in the first act. The end of the story is is ludicrous. The way that this film yeah. loses its way makes the color of money look like the sting. It makes yeah. the color of money look mm-hmm. so tightly focused. It makes it look like Top Gun, where everything lines up and locks <laughs> together in the last act. <laughs> One last note on the movie, just to kind of wash away some of the sourness and, and balance it with some sweet, as you would while crafting a cocktail. <laughs> uh-huh. When asked about Coughlin's laws, for which Gould took credit, he said, quote, The one that influenced me the most and made it into the movie as dialogue was, Workers never hustle, hustlers never work. I was a worker, and there was a time when my hustler friends seemed to be getting over with their scams, and I was just trying to make good drinks, cleaning ashtrays, changing soap, rewriting rejected stories and getting them re-rejected, writing free scripts that never got made. But in the end, the workers outlast the hustlers, as Mm. Flanagan outlasts Coughlin, if they live long enough. That is nice. That's good. Dark beat right there at the end, but yes, the work, not the hustle. Heard. To tangent into the biographical and to pick up on a thread that I mentioned in last week's show, Cruz is now married. The production of Cocktail is the first production, which he will spend as a married man. He marries Mimi Rogers on May the 9th, 1987. The story of their meeting is a little confused. Cruz says that they met at a party in 1985. Rogers says, no, no, we were set up by our friends in 1986. Either way, they start dating for real in 87 and are quickly married. Cruz was 23. Mimi Rogers was 29. She grew up in Virginia, in Arizona, in Michigan, and in England before finally settling down in Los Angeles. Her father was a prominent member of the Church of Scientology, having been friends with L. Ron Hubbard before Mimi was born. So she grows up as a part of the church. She graduates high school at the age of 14. At the age of 20, she marries Jim Rogers, who is 10 years her senior. They divorce in 1980, and Mimi decides that she wants to pursue a career in acting. The story goes that she and Cruz were married in New York City, and the only people in attendance were Cruz's mother and his friend and best man, Emilio Estevez, who, oddly, had been in a very public relationship with Mimi Rogers a couple of years earlier. (laughs) So that's where we are, circle the production of this film. We will keep you up to date on celebrity gossip from 35 years ago as we progress (laughs) through the series. Let's talk about the credits that start this film, shall we? Because I need to be done with the 1980s. Oh, no. Are you just over it? I'm over neon and bad font use, yes. Yeah, I kind of dig the neon. I don't mind it. And even the bad font right now has a certain kind of, this is fun. The thing (laughs) is that I hated 80s fashion and culture for so long, and I'm finally coming around on it. So now I like get to enjoy it for the first time. That's that 40-year nostalgia cycle, right? It's what it is. It's a real thing, I guess. I think maybe part of my distaste for the logo for cocktail is that that was going to be the original logo for this podcast yeah which i loved (laughs) i I thought it was so much fun days trying to make it work (laughs) that logo is ugly yeah you always hated it i really did yeah Yeah. (laughs) it was the obvious choice but no we couldn't make it work that was back when the podcast was going to be called cruising it was and our second uh season was for meryl streep and it was going to be either Merrily we roll along. Oh my god. Or streeping with the enemy. <laughs> it's really amazing that anyone listens to I a word forgotten. we say. I have forgotten that you came up with those. It's so adorable because everyone at home, I think, suspects that I come up with this nonsense and you're always the mediating force. And usually that's true. Usually, usually. But here, this is all you, baby. (laughs) So we open 
unnecessarily on Cruz sticking his head at the roof of a car, chasing down a Greyhound bus. This is him being discharged from the army and catching the bus to New York City. It's an odd opening. It's, it's, it's kind of arresting. the weirdest way to catch a bus I've ever seen. But yeah, yeah it, it does promise a movie that you don't get. It's it's a fun opening. It'll play no part in the nope. proceedings, but he's pretty charming. Yeah, through the sequence, I it's think. Fun. Yeah, particularly when he's on the bus talking to the baby. We're looking out at the skyline <laughs> yes. of New York. We're, we're going to have it made. This is going to be our city. Yeah, you and me, Mike. Yeah, so cute. That poor mom next to him right. is just going to be thinking about him for the rest of her life. Yeah, she looks pretty <laughs> starstruck at that moment. She really does. He goes to his Uncle Pat's bar, and we get a little bar top wisdom. We get Uncle the... Pat sucks, too. Uncle Sorry. Pat does suck. He just here to say all the men in this movie suck. We the women, I think, pretty good. don't really get a lot of him. It would be nice if when we circled back around to him in the third act of the film, he had softened, he, he had yeah. arced, he had given us some wisdom or something. I'm not sure that any of the men here change. No. I mean, they don't. Flanagan presents himself as someone who has changed at the end of the film, but I'm not at all sure that that is true. Yeah, I, I don't buy it necessarily partly, either. That's because his motivation in the first act is so soft. Yeah. He wants money. Yeah. There's nothing specific. There's nothing money. concrete. Yes. The plot moves fast enough. The editing is fast enough that it doesn't really matter because it just feels so propulsive. Sure. But yeah, later in the film, that is going to become very soft and unfocused. I do love this montage of job interviews that we get, and I love how seamlessly we move his goals, his immediate goals. He goes in to yes. become like a Wall Street stockbroker, and they're immediately like, no, this is not going to work. You need to try advertising. Yeah. So he goes to Madison Avenue and tries yes. that. That doesn't work. Oh, you need to go to television. That is a great bit of satire. It that is. is a lovely little, little trickle down that's happening right there. He finally winds up outside of a bar. He sees a help wanted sign. He goes in, and this is our first... Introduction it's TGI to our Fridays, which is so funny. Yeah. TGI Fridays in New York just makes me laugh, like as a thing, as a gimmick. <laughs> so this is our introduction to Coughlin. Is he charming? Is he strong? How does he work? Uh, I basically don't like Coughlin at all from the jump. He's just, again, a character who's not for me. He's so macho. He's so Are you swaggery. open in general to this very masculine notion of, of the bartender philosopher? Oh, yeah. Of course yeah. I am. Yeah. I, I... <laughs> he genuinely did just look at me as if I was crazy. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, I have... How many script ideas do I have about magical philosopher bartenders? In fact, I would say that the challenge is to imagine that kind of bartender philosopher, advice giver, counsel person, not as an older man, because that's just what the trope is. So do you feel that the problem with Coughlin is... In the performance? Is it in the writing? Is oh, no, it in, it's in the, the characterization? The, it's, it's in the writing itself. Yeah, he's just... But as, as the character is envisioned or in the moment-to-moment -moment dialogue? Because I find a lot of the moment-to-moment -moment dialogue just very abrasive. It's just yeah. so overwritten. Yes, yeah. I would say it, it's the dialogue. Like the idea of the mentor who takes you in, who teaches you the ropes, who and who can be you know playfully antagonistic from time to time, sure. all works for me. But he's just so crass yeah we discussed last week about how surprisingly the color of money does not fit into ebert's concept of the cruise picture very oh, well whereas sure. this is perfect cruise picture <laughs> material. of course sure. ebert won't coin that phrase he won't give us that rubric until we get to days of thunder but yeah it's already here it's already evident this That's is interesting every picture going forward this is also, incidentally, where we get that mention of the vodka martini with the Perno float. Oh, a bad drink. Don't yeah, that was one of my it. notes. Like, please don't float Perno on your vodka martini. You will regret your life decisions. Just get a corpse reviver. But 10 minutes and 30 seconds into this film, including the opening credits, 10 minutes and 30 seconds, and we hard cut 
to Tutti Frutti by Little Richard uh-huh. and Brian Flanagan's disastrous first shift at the bar. And I've got to Which tell you, funny. I am loving this film at this point. I think this film yeah. is, is a firecracker at this point. We have not wasted a moment. We have not wasted a frame. A lot of it has been cinematically inventive. It's been really good to look at. Mm-hmm. The performances are all vivid. Maybe yes. not as nuanced as we might like. Maybe not as considered as we might like. But really strong characterization happening. I'm I'm in at this point. I think this is like B plus, maybe A minus material. Sure. Yeah, I would agree. You feel the same way? Yeah, I do. How closely does that disastrous first night behind the bar mirror your own experience of newbie bartenders coming in? I mean, yeah. we should probably frame this out a little bit, right? This film does not represent bartending oh, in no. a realistic fashion. No, 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 no. Two people behind Surprising the bar no that one. is 40 people deep. Yeah. No bar bags. <laughs> you are waiting 30 to 40 minutes at that bar yeah. for your drink on a good night. <laughs> so true. Yeah, it reminds me more than anything because uh, we're a football town. So uh, in the fall... When all of the people come in to watch the OU games, that's when we get just absolutely herded. And then you get those orders that are not the things that you're accustomed to, you know. Sure. So I suppose it's it's most like that, which most of the time makes it a lot easier because everybody's like, oh, I want, you know, Tito's and water. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Ranch waters are big, which is basically <laughs> just tequila and Topo Chico and a little bit of lime, you know. Uh, so all the things that we really pride ourselves on go out the window. And all your craft cares. cocktails yeah. are carefully arrayed. Which is kind of great because we don't have time to make those sure. right now when we're like 40 people deep and they're all just holding up their hands saying, can I get a Bloody Mary? And you're like, yeah, okay, sure. So, uh, and it can be very frustrating, especially when there are those things that are like almost jargon. Like I like the Cuba Libre joke because yeah. just say rum and Coke. It is kind of dumb. The difference is that there's a lime on the side. That makes it a Cuba Libre. That server is maybe my favorite she's character great. in this entire no, thing. No, she's great. All the women are great. Three scenes yeah. maybe? So strong. The women are cool. <laughs> I don't know what to say. There are a couple things too that are just frustrating like as a bartender that you have to learn. Like a single pour, it's not an ounce. It's an ounce and a half. A double pour is not two ounces. It is two and a half ounces. Some places, some places, they double the one and a half and it's three ounces. But you just have to kind of know. And so when someone says, I want a single short, that seems like they would want less booze. But they don't really want less booze. They want their glass to be shorter. You know what I mean? There's just a lot that's like, you have to just kind of be in there for a while. And in fact, one of my favorite stories from being behind the bar is that I was just talking about a corpse survivor, which I do think everyone should try a corpse survivor. And it's really these days you don't get a corpse survivor. You get a corpse survivor number two yeah, because no. the first drink sucked. And so we fixed it for you. You're welcome. <laughs> that was the part of cocktail history that we didn't mention is that all 19th century <laughs> drinks sucked. So bad. Yeah. So bad. So uh, I was behind the bar for a little while and it was one of the first shifts that I was working alone. And uh, I got a ticket came in for a corpse survivor number two i had to pull up my my document to check it out because i didn't have it memorized of course it's not one that we get really frequently i make it i send it out the guy orders two more comes and finds me afterwards and was like that's the best corpse survivor number two i ever had thanks so much and i was like awesome cool okay turns out i made it wrong that's why he liked it so much (laughs) you made a corpse survivor number three (laughs) Because I later came to find, because it had said Cokie Americano, which you and I know, making the menus, that this is an easy problem to come into. It is. Cokie makes a couple of different aperitifs for the back bar. They do a rosa, they do an Americano, and they do uh, a sweet vermouth. And we carry all three of those. Mm -hmm. And I use the Cokie de Torino sweet vermouth so much. That's what we make our Manhattan with. That's the only one I knew that we had. Because the other two basically just sit back there. We only use the Americano for a Vesper, which almost never happens, or a Corpse of Iron 
number two, which happens a little more often because it's technically written on the menu. And the Rosa just goes bad. Like, I've got it in almost nothing. <laughs> a, a, a cocktail I invented that's on the aperitif section that nobody ever orders. So I um, just didn't realize. For it to go bad, even when you keep it refrigerated, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Refrigerate <Yep>. your vermouth. <laughs> <laughs> Things we learn, yes. <laughs> So even if this bar experience as it's presented to us on screen isn't obviously accurate, does it feel accurate? It does feel accurate, yeah. especially when I see the, the bar babies come in. Because I at least enjoyed going to bars and drinking cocktails before I started bartending. Sure. So I already had a little more working knowledge. And, you know, I'm a grown-up. So my dear friend, who will go unnamed, who was barely 21 when we started training her, her first day on shift, a guy came in and asked for a screwdriver, and she went downstairs to the basement to find a toolbox for this man, brought it up, put an actual Phillips head screwdriver in his hand, <laughs> and he laughed so hard. It was the best day of this man's life. I would die. I would die. No one would believe that if you put it <laughs> I in I know. Script. Exactly. It's one of those things people are like, oh, no, 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 that's too on the nose. Yeah. But I swear to God, it happened to my friend behind the bar. But you recognize that feeling of being overwhelmed, of being shouted at, of being... Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely. Yes. And you just get more and more flustered. And then it's easier to make mistakes, which is really too bad. And then you just stop caring. So, yeah, it's it's tough. It can be really hard and very stressful. We cut ahead to the end of the night as Brian sits on the bar stool, wringing out his socks, which is extremely unpleasant. So unpleasant, <laughs> but also a little bit true. You come home from work behind a bar, so filthy, so yeah. sticky. So wet. It's terrible. Yeah. The sassy server, who never gets a name, unfortunately, but But she comes by and tucks some money into Mm -hmm. his pocket, which is really sweet. He's obviously very charming. He's obviously making good progress. Mm -hmm. He gets offered the job. We get the very unpleasant joke about uh, giving the servers cramps. Yeah. Horrible joke. Just so bad. First of many. And even then, we're still cutting fast. We've now kind of established a rhythm in the film that is going to continue through the rest of the first act. We are just moving. We cut fast to business school. He's bartending by night. He's business schooling by day. He's doing it all. He's going to make his way in the big city. And it's got this interesting potential element, this interesting potential contrast between learning the theory in day and the practice at night. I don't know that we ever really hook that up. God knows we abandon it. Mm-hmm. 35 minutes into this film, but it's an interesting it's an interesting push-pull pressure at the heart of the story. Yeah, and definitely very true to, like, it, it, there are people who are just lifer bartenders, but many, many bartenders are also going to school, going to night school, doing whatever it is. It's a, it's a stop on the bus to wherever sure. you're going. Yeah. For most people, it's not the destination. We're immediately back in the bar, and he's already learning. He's already flipping bottles. He's already yep. charming the servers. He's already flirting with the girl. He's already dodging the register when Cogman tries to open it for the second time and <laughs> yes. clock him in the side of the head. It's incredibly proficient storytelling. We mm-hmm. are moving. This story has places to go. He is asked to write his own obituary. He falls asleep in class. We get the whole Robert Palmer's addicted to love scene. He is burning the candle at both ends. How are you feeling about the film at this point? At this point, I love it. and I'm having a lot of fun. Beside it being so macho, like I I get it. I'm a person who is, you know, I just graduated, but I've been doing that same thing and burning the midnight oil, trying to get all my papers done and getting everything turned into class, but also working behind the bar. So I'm just enjoying it as, you know, something that's familiar and fun for me. This Despite is Coglin. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> this is for me right on the doorstep of the first big stumble, which is the the first real scene that we get with his odious business school professor. 
where we have this extended period of the professor just bullying him and then yeah. handing him an F for his his paper. It sucks. That guy is so overwritten. Yeah, it does. My understanding, though, is that business school is designed to weed people out. Sure. Yeah. So I'll accept the reality of that. Yeah, but, but, but it sucks. Not by this weird caricature of yeah. a guy. And it is, I mean, I don't like to look behind the script and see the author skulking there, but this is definitely Haywood Gold. Yeah. This is definitely a guy who has no respect for academics and theorists. This yeah. is a guy who is doing the work, whether it's in the trenches as a bartender or in the trenches as a working hacky journeyman writer. And I say hacky in that particular context with no disrespect intended at all. <laughs> he has a real cynicism and skepticality about yeah. this kind of, of elevated academia, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it shows in that performance. Flanagan and Coughlin, meanwhile, are getting closer. They get drunk after closing the bar one night and go for a walk through the park singing another weirdly anachronistic song. This is 1988, you guys. There are songs now. We have them. We can hear them all the time. I love that sequence where Coughlin tumbles down the subway steps. That's yeah. so unnecessary, it's, but oh, genuinely yeah. jarring. It is quite jarring. If he wasn't drunk, he would be in so much pain. It's hard to watch, actually. I don't. I, I wish they hadn't shown it. Right. Just, just have him fall down out of frame, and then I laugh. But actually, seeing this quite tall, not old man, but you know, no, he's but, but, forty yeah, something, a gangly like middle-aged fellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to see you fall down the subway stairs. No, for sure. Yeah, I really like. Tom Cruise's befuddled drunk acting through yes, the sequence. I think he's cute. Yeah. I think he's giving it. We haven't talked really about Cruise at all. How is he performing for you in this film? This is the most Cruise he's been so far, I think. That is certainly right? true. Right? Yeah. Well, it's, a Top Gun to a certain extent. I but. think Top Gun was still finding it. Top Gun, I still yeah. saw some of his, like, I could see him trying to be cool, you know? Sure, sure. But this, I think, we're just getting, uh, he seems much more comfortable in his own skin. We get the smile a whole lot. He seems to know what about himself works on camera. So it's working for me. I like Tom Cruise in it. Yeah, we're also mediating between the different poles of his performance to his his mm -hmm. cockiness and his what self-awareness but also unshakable faith in his own rightness sure you know? sure <laughs> that thing yeah. that he does where the world kind of <laughs> knocks him back but he and he quiets his performance he quiets his his bravado and his overconfidence hmm. but all that does is concentrate it into a deeper firmer confidence <laughs> that allows him to continue <laughs> onward again we're going to keep circling back to that question of whether or not anyone in this film actually arcs and changes this is the point at which they discuss the formal partnership to pursue cocktails and dreams they are hired out of Coughlin's place to tend bar at the 80s nightclub that has ever existed oh the my cell God. block the hottest saloon in town, the guy says, like it's 1890. That was such a weird line. The use of the word saloon consistently in this film. saloon. No one says that. Is that like an Upper East Side thing? Is that like I a cool... I have no idea. It's so strange. I don't strange. know if it was an 80s yeah. thing. I don't know. It's very odd. This... No one just says bar. Why not? Yeah, no. I don't understand. <laughs> the introduction of the cell block, this weird yeah. nightclub with its horseshoe-shaped bar. Awful. I got to tell you, this is the first break from reality. It doesn't make any goddamn sense. Just like from a production design standpoint, you're like, there are no cocktail waitresses. You cannot have two bartenders for 200 people. It was this bad. Two bartenders works. for 40 people was unconvincing. <laughs> two bartenders for a crowd of 300. Luckily, they don't care about drinks. They're just They're gathered for, for performance poetry. art. <laughs> this is where the wheels start coming off. <laughs> and... How? And but how? 
we get... Was the yuppie poet guy, was he hired? Or was he supposed to just be a guy who came to the bar that day with a briefcase and decided to <laughs> spontaneously spout poetry? The way that the crowd quiets makes right? me think that he is a regular fixture in this place. That he, he is something that people look forward to, despite the fact that it was abysmal. Just a shockingly bad very poetry poor, anyway. Very bad poetry. And extremely badly yeah. performed. Also maybe... A recurring beat through through this film too. Mm. Another little bit of Haywood Gould's cynicism here. He's very cynical about art. He's very cynical about the way that people present art and artists. Well, that's right. Get yeah. back to that. Yeah, a little later. there is a lot of stuff about that. But you know what's super authentic? A bartender climbing up on the bar and spontaneously making up some poetry. God. <laughs> About the worst cocktails ever made. Just a list of terrible <laughs> drinks. a litany of every awful drink. <laughs> Snuck in here, by the way, the death spasm. The death spasm. This is a Haywood Gould original. This is a cocktail no, that he, he invented. No, he put it in the poem? Yes, he what well, He prick. needed a word that rhymed with orgasm, and there are only so many. <laughs> the death spasm, by the way. I know we're talking a lot about bad drinks. Buckle up. This is the worst no, one. Oh, I don't Here want to it is. hear it. Okay. Three quarters of an ounce of London dry gin, three okay. quarters of an ounce of rye whiskey, and a quarter Ooh. ounce float of absinthe. Oh, no. You're going to go blind. That's poison. That's bad news. Oh, yep. no. <laughs> but much more importantly, mm-hmm. Gina Gershon is here being stunningly beautiful. She is lovely. Yeah. Little firecracker performance. Mm-hmm. I, she's not in this film a lot, but I really like her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, she's great. Uh, she got her break the year before in Pretty in Pink. She would go on to be in, weirdly, the aforementioned Paul Verhoeven showgirls, of course. Whoa. She's in the Wachowskis' Bound. She's in the mm. John Woo, Nicolas Cage, John Travolta classic Face Off. Face Off. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I've always liked Gina Gershon. I think she's great. Okay. And she's so hot in this film. She is. She is So really spunky. Great. Yeah. 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 She's cool. What do you think of the sex scene with, uh, with Carl? Oh, I was distracted by the great lamp. <laughs> okay. The lamp was really great, and the sex was kind of silly. They are mostly sh- it fun. shots I'm sh- I'm of sure lamps they were having fun. and sheets. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. And just b- bouncing and legs, yeah. But I found it really refreshing to get a sex scene in a film of this period, in a film uh, with this kind of context, that is fun, that is joyous, True. that is celebratory, and is not... Just, you know, super intense, smoldering, late 80s, early 90s erotic True. thriller. You know? There's True. no saxophone music yeah. here. And there was no nudity, was there? Uh, no, not really. I mean, they're so swaddled in yeah. just acres and acres so of sheets. sheets. Yeah. So many sheets. <laughs> I don't know what the bed size is that's two up from a California king, but that's where they are. Those are the sheets that they yeah. have. It's it's pretty cute. It was cute. Yeah. Cute's a good From word for there, it. though, we take a hard turn and we get what yeah. you believe to be the worst Coughlin in the oh, entire movie, right? Totally. Yeah. This is when we cut back to the dingy little apartment where they are staying together. Mm-hmm. And we really start to develop the idea of cocktails and dreams, which they can fund, of course, by going to Jamaica and earning money in the off season. Sure. Coughlin is cynical, both about Jamaica and about Coral, we cut out to the basketball sequence mm-hmm. where Cruz is just effortlessly sinking buckets because the guy can do everything. I guess. I guess. It's also is... just a weird, yeah. <laughs> is Cruz actually doing this? I couldn't tell. Yeah, he is actually doing it. We uh-huh. do all of those shots are in a, they're, they're not all daisy chained together, but they are doing the shots in a one It is said that that setup was very easy because, of course, they have to shoot everything behind the bar over and over and over again. Because even after weeks of practice, they are dropping bottles all the time, dropping glassware all the time. Yeah. So all of that stuff just took forever to shoot. So this 
This is just basketball in the park. This is a piece of cake. <laughs> this is where Coughlin bets Flanagan that Coral will be in bed with someone else. By the end of the week, he bets him $50 and then makes it happen. And then seduces Coral. Yeah. Well, it's unclear. He doesn't seduce Coral. No. Worse. He tells Coral that Flanagan was talking about her to him. Yeah. And Telling that makes Coral take revenge, yeah. essentially, by, we are to infer, sleeping with Coughlin. Right. Then kind of making out with him in yeah. front of Cruz, uh, Brian, Getting at, a while real, at work. A real sloppy make out there across the yeah. bar. This is it's a place of work, all madam. weird. I don't, I, I, this plot point did not work for me. The only thing about it that works for me, again, talking about, you know, relatively strong women. We're really, yeah. goddamn, we're really grading on a scale here. Yes. But relatively strong female characters mm-hmm. here. Is that she chooses to enact her revenge rather than just being seduced by Coglin yes. because he's so yes. charming? No, that 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 is true. And but and she says to to Flanagan, you know, this is what you get for talking about us having yeah, sex. Yeah. I guess, which seems weird to me. Like most friends talk about their sex lives. I feel like you know. Yeah, it's not super realistic, but it's yeah. it is at least a consistent emotional motivation. Mm. You know? Yeah, I suppose so. This leads to the fight in the bar, which is great, oh. actually, like really good. Yeah. It's Coughlin coming up with the broken bottle as apart so from being upsetting. awful foreshadowing. Yeah. Is a really dark moment. Is yeah. a really dangerous moment. Yeah. And it feels it feels like what Brian Brown is bringing to that role is just much more complicated than what we actually find in the finished edit. Mm-hmm. Which is obviously you Which know, makes those moments stand out so yeah, much, yeah, for yeah. being so much darker than, you know, horseback riding on a Jamaican beach, say. And that's it. All of the plot, all that we have, all that there's going to be is done. That's the end of the first act. We are like 40 minutes into this film and we are going to jump ahead two and years to Jamaica, we're Jamaica and we're in, more importantly, a different film. We are suddenly in a much softer, much slower. Rom-com. It's a rom-com. Yeah. And it's crazy how much Jerry Maguire we get from Tom Cruise in the rest of this film. There's nothing in the first part, sure. even though yeah. these are not dissimilar characters. No, now that you mention it. But we are now really, or I was seeing at least, a lot of foreshadowing of that performance, which I think is a great performance. You know? I agree. Yeah, We've I'm been looking forward to that <laughs> one. Looking forward to yes. Jerry Maguire since we started <laughs> Fingers this crossed yeah. for getting to Jerry Maguire. Yes. So we jump ahead two years. We are in a beachside bar in Jamaica. Flanagan is... Working, he's running the bar, but we're seeing none of the energy that he possessed yeah. back in New York. He doesn't do any more flair here, does he's, he? He does a tiny little bit a when little? he's trying to impress Jordan when she comes back for a drink. Sure. After he rescues her friend on the beach who has been drinking yeah. champagne. <laughs> I don't know why we even have to do this. I don't know why Jordan can't just come up to the bar. <laughs> They're but... meat cute. They need something yeah, more punchy, I guess. I have no idea. It's, it's true. When you want two people to really fall in love, it's important to bring them together over a vomiting friend. <laughs> He takes care of Jordan's friend. She comes back to the bar either later that same day or the following day. It's a little unclear. Mm-hmm. He does impress her with a little bit of flair. But everything here is just so much more slow. It's so much more. Relaxed. Relaxed. And, and for mm-hmm. a moment, you can think, oh, we're just contrasting the hustle, the bustle of New York City and the relaxed environment of Jamaica. But no, this is just going to be the rest of the movie. It's just going to be like this <laughs> just gonna be different from now. here on out. <laughs> does Elizabeth Shue make a good first impression? I think so. I think she's just lovely. Yeah. I don't think she really puts a foot wrong in this, except to say again that her most emotional moments just ring a little bit hollow for me. And I don't know if it's because she doesn't have the chops for them or if it was just like a directing situation or or what. But for for me, everything that she does that's lighthearted is lovely. 
Then Coughlin shows up the very next day. We haven't even had a chance no. to miss him yet. <laughs> <laughs> At all. It's all informed yeah. that it's been two years, but it's I actually been like four minutes. I didn't realize it had been yeah. two years. I assumed it had been, you know, six months or yeah, something. Yeah, it's, it's only yeah. when he says that it's been two years since he last saw him. Yeah. Was, yeah. We also meet his new wife, Carrie, who is almost sarcastically beautiful. Sarcastically like, swimsuit model hot. Like yeah. so hot that it's difficult to take that characterization seriously, which yes. is no fault of the actress, Not of course. Not her fault, no. But she is reduced to being a standee. Yes, yeah. She's a walking film, mannequin, yeah. Which is particularly odious because that's not the reason that he is involved with her. The reason no. that he is involved with her is because of her money. Right. It's gross writing. I don't know what to tell you. This man obviously just wants to reward gross men with hot, rich women, and that's what he does. There's not a nice way to look around it or see anything more progressive, I'm afraid. It just is what it is. The great thing is that they do give this character, Carrie, her name is right? Yeah. They do give her some interesting dialogue and some interesting choices that she makes personally later when we get back to New York. But here, it's terrible. I think even here. Even, even here, here the, you think? The first time that she comes in, right when they're going to the uh, dance club, she is already making eyes at Brian. It's not commented on. He doesn't even oh, necessarily see it. Well, but she good. is already yeah. outperforming the material right there. Okay. Yeah, none of this is the actor's fault. This is all... Oh, no. Yeah, I, I would be really interested to see that original draft of the script, one of the 40 original drafts yeah, of that script. Where and she what said her story that there was, was more. Yeah. yeah. It's not going to be good. They're not going to make her oh, no. stronger in order to explain why she fell under Coughlin's sway, right? It's going to be some kind of trauma. It's going to be something terrible well, to motivate Well, even that. Flanagan says that the, so when Jordan asks, how did these two even get together? He says, well, she had a lot of money and she just wanted to piss her parents off by marrying a bartender, yeah. which is its own, like, something, at least. But that's all that we get. Paper thin. Paper thin. So we have that sequence at the dance club, which is fun enough. Then Flanagan and Jordan make out on the beach. We montage through them getting There's to each other. There's a lot of making out. Horse riding. A lot of yeah. making out. Okay, let's return to our Tom Cruise kiss index. We've been tracking that through this entire series. Is he still a good kisser? Meh. This didn't look so good, but it I feel like I might put that times, on Elizabeth's view. But it's not its not too bad. It's not too bad. It's not too bad. It's not late 90s. No one wants to watch Tom Cruise kissing on screen because it's weird. <laughs> It's occasionally a little awkward, but it's not uh, It's not the uncanny valley yet. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and though these montage sequences are pretty, yeah. and, and they both have a decent amount of chemistry, I guess, like it, it's working, but we literally do less in the first 10 minutes of the second act mm -hmm. than we did in any given minute of the first act. Sure. We are progressing the story that much more slowly. They sit by the lagoon. Flanagan lays out the problems of being a bartender who's trying to keep his days free for his real work. He, Which isn't real work. This is the really weird thing about this conversation yeah. is he's doing this whole thing about like, <laughs> if I just had more time, I could what? Yes. You could what? Ellipsis you could question mark? suddenly have a billionaire idea for an aglet, I guess. Yes. I bet you couldn't. I don't know. It's He's like, you're, you're waiting for what? You, you, you want more time so that you can let inspiration strike and yeah. just come up with your get rich quick idea also this is nothing he's talking about people manufacturing these everyday necessities mm -hmm. but he's never exhibited any interest in manufacturing of course not it's been in wall street it's been in yeah. marketing it's been in advertising it's the been whole thing is just get rich quick, that I much think. more that's personality what he really wants. and that's the yeah. problem is that that motivation is not specific enough no no it's absolutely lacking any kind of direct through line from what he wants to what he's doing 
I do like that it's the reason that Jordan doesn't tell him about her money because she sees that immediately. She sees through him immediately. And she won't let that be an incentive to his pursuit of her or his love for her. Yes. Again, we have to kind of tease this apart quite delicately. This Mm -hmm. is not Jordan's fault. This is the film's fault. And it's not here. By the time we get to her rundown art loft apartment, (laughs) we have to do a fair amount of justification for why there is no indication that she comes from money. Right. And it's not as though she's estranged from her parents. She clearly has a pretty close relationship with her dad. Also, I feel like if you're spending three weeks, isn't it, in Jamaica, then maybe you've got a little money to spend. A fair point, too. You know? Yeah. And I think as well that we're setting up an interesting tension here within the character of Flanagan that that the bartending is taking over, right? Like the night is eating the day. Mm-hmm. This right. thing that he was doing, and this is obviously a story that Haywood Gold is invested in and that we hear about all the time yeah, in real life. Yeah, that, that I'm interested this in. This thing that he's doing to pass the time, this thing that he's doing to make hands meet has actually started consuming everything right. that he is. It's smart. It's interesting. But also, let's not forget that the reason he's in Jamaica is to build a stake so that he can go back to New York City and open right. his bar. <laughs> But we just don't care. That's what he's going to do, in fact. That is going to be the end of this film. And we just don't care because we need him to be feeling lost and meandering. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't doesn't hang together and Mm -hmm. it does not move fast enough. This is also the scene where we have sex by the waterfall and then sex by the campfire. Right. (laughs) It's all all very pretty, but yeah. Yeah. I get like why we want to shoot sex around waterfalls and stuff, but... Every time they like, first of all, it's always the girl who gets dipped into the water. And y'all, it hurts. Water coming down that hard onto your head. And they're just trying to have to look like, oh, no, this is lovely. It's like a shower. No, it isn't. There's no way that that doesn't feel like a fire hydrant. But okay. (laughs) Dip Tom Cruise in there instead. See how he likes it. That she so seductively takes off her bathing suit. (laughs) <laughs> and then he so awkwardly takes off his. It's a little bit cute. They are awkward together, which yeah. is darling. When they both first try dancing together and they're so oh, awful boy. at it, Elizabeth Shue, even worse than Tom Cruise. You know, we've talked <laughs> about this adorable. recently with uh, our Patreon bonus episode on Dirty Dancing. Mm-hmm. I guarantee there was no music being played on set that day. <laughs> oh, they no. were just having to fill in. <laughs> so awful. <laughs> Some crew members snapping. Right? <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> I'll say this now because I will probably forget later. Maybe my favorite line in the entire piece is when he does go to her weird rundown art loft apartment Mm -hmm. and he sees the giant canvas that she's painted of the waterfall. And he says, is that our waterfall? And she says, no. (laughs) That is so good. It is good. I love that. Yeah. I love that studio apartment too. It's a great set. That night by the bar, though, the specters of the past come back. Coughlin calls out Flanagan as a worker, not a hustler, and Flanagan bristles at the thought that he might be stuck here forever. Yeah, Again, he would rather forgetting be that this is the plan. Yes, yes. <laughs> conveniently forgetting. No, I'm doing exactly. Also, I have tens of thousands of dollars in the bank already. Must have. This is so weird. Yeah. Well, that was the goal, right? $75,000 from three years in Jamaica. He's been here two years. So he's got to have, even if he's just working by himself, Yeah. he's got to have $30,000 dollars in the bank he already? Mu- I must. Oh, yeah. I don't know. It doesn't hang together. It really doesn't at all. All of this is just motivation so that Coughlin can bet him another $50 that he will not be able to hook up with the wealthy woman at the bar. Right. This is Bonnie, played by Lisa Baines, who was a well-respected actor on stage and screen, just a huge IMDb list, probably most famous for playing Amy's mother in David Fincher's Gone Girl. Oh, interesting. Playing Rosamund Pike's mother, who okay. it is an unbelievably brilliant performance. Any film that is replete with yeah. brilliant performances, 
she stands out. It is so considered. It is a note perfect performance wow. in okay. that film. Tragically, Baines was killed in oh 2021 after being struck by an electric scooter just outside the Juilliard School Jesus. in New York City. Yeah. It led to a big campaign to try and make those damn scooters right. safer. So far to basically no effect, but oh. hopefully we're going to figure that out yeah. because those things are a menace. They are. It's true. I think that she is just outstanding, by the way. And I, I have nothing bad to say about this character either. Not I think this character thing. is awesome. Absolutely perfect. And it's nice to see Sugar Mamas getting a little love. Yeah. We show Sugar Daddies <laughs> all the time. But I got to tell you, the bartender pipeline to sex worker is, it's there. Like, let's not pretend. And it's definitely in a sugar baby situation. I so think it's not so I, much a pipeline as it is like a highway. It goes in both directions. <laughs> it goes in both know? directions. Yeah. It's yeah. true. It's true. <laughs> She's absolutely terrific. A great character given real life yeah. by this performance. I'm, I'm, I'm wild about her. It would have been so easy to make this character flat, to make this performance perfunctory, mm -hmm. to make it hacky. Neither of those things happen. Maybe by accident. I genuinely don't know to what degree the female characters that we get in this film are as good and as complex and sophisticated and nuanced as and they are on purpose. Yeah. And how much of it is just accidental. Mm. But speaking of things being somewhat perfunctory... Mm -hmm. He hooks up with Bonnie. Jordan sees them leaving, is of, of course. course immediately heartbroken, mm -hmm. immediately leaves the island and oh, flies back home. I met three days ago, slept with somebody else. I'm going to cry on the beach and cut off my vacation. It's stupid. It's weak. Weak It's sauce. real weak. Yeah. I do like that he doesn't immediately rush back to New York to find her. He That's realizes true. that he's got his meal ticket now. <laughs> Which kind of to his credit, I have to say, like the guy's got nothing basically going for him. This is a including scruples, <laughs> including scruples. Seriously, though, he keeps pretending that he has them, but he doesn't. This to me feels like the most sincere version of himself. And then this relationship with Bonnie is completely cards on the table consensual. They both know what it is and what it isn't. I have found this maybe the most interesting relationship in the whole movie. Wow. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the difference that's presented to us here between Flanagan and Coughlin? That Coughlin has hooked up with Carrie, that he has married Carrie mm -hmm. for her money and is lying to her. Whereas Flanagan is hooking up with Bonnie, not because he wants her money, but because he wants the opportunity that being close to her will afford him. He wants a foot in the door. Mm -hmm. He is still a worker. And Coughlin is still a hustler, yeah. right? That's the distinction that we're being presented with? Yeah, and why their relationship doesn't work out. Because that's not what the agreement is for, for her. Like, And she's really clear about that. She's like, I'm not just going to go up to all of these people that I work with who are almost certainly all men. She says advertising guys. Like Absolutely all men. men yes. she, yeah. Absolutely all with college degrees. Yes. If not post-grad qualifications. Right. And bring in this sugar baby bartender boyfriend exactly guy she right. in Jamaica, this which everybody can see. Yeah. Like everyone knows it's fine. Everyone does this in this particular part of the world. But no, honey bunny, I'm not bringing you to work with me. No, it's not. <laughs> no, stay home and watch cartoons. Exactly. I'll be back later. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I really love about her performance is when she comes to him in his little cabana, mm -hmm. when he's pouting because his other girlfriend has already gone back to New York. <laughs> yes. She comes to him and is genuinely seductive and playful and sexy so and warm She's and great. empathetic and, and is a real person in that sequence. Yeah. It's not predatory. It's not cold. It would be so easy to do that. It, it would be would so be. tempting to it do that. It would be really easy and tempting to, to make her like... Uh, a gross to, to make her a, a man in a fur coat yeah exactly uh, but yeah. Yeah. they don't 
they to make her exploitative in uh, a way that yes. she isn't by in virtue of her genuine true. desire and affection for him. Mm-hmm. And that might be it. That might be the mediating thing is that it is also affectionate. Yes, you know? absolutely. Well, and I think that's always the difference between that in that particular kind of like sex work adjacent space. Like generally speaking, someone who's in a sugaring relationship, there is affection there. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you just, you know, call a hotline or you know what I mean? Like there's there's a different way to get just sex with no affection if you want affection too that's a different market that's an interesting perspective too that obviously to our eyes in 2023 this is much more explicitly a sex work relationship yes but is that how it would have been perceived in 88 were we even open to the idea of talking about sugar mamas is it more you know this idea that we return to later about coglin's ship coming in and about how gross that is like the world owes him a wealthy woman to take care of him because I mean I don't from know, this guy, what's his name? Haywood Gould. Yeah. yeah. According to Haywood Gould, clearly these men are just being rewarded with hot rich women. But so how that's is not it? the story I'm interested in, I guess. So well, I'm like <laughs> But you're right. The version of the story that you are looking at is is real. It's right yeah, there on the screen absolutely. in front of you. Especially the... because of the performance of the woman playing Bonnie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it is just the quality of the performances, you think? I really do. I, I'm inclined, just based on on all of the really odious moments within the script, uh, all of the moments that even great performances can't save, which Bonnie has one too, like when she gets all broken up about him making a complete shit of himself at that art yeah. gallery, yeah. where he is completely in the wrong, and yet she comes out saying, oh, I'm sorry. Gross. Well, yes, but I think, not to jump ahead, but I think we're supposed to read her there as being desperate as being heartbroken and and ultimately she does gather her dignity and walk away she tries to bargain first she does she does but not i guess that's hard for me because i'm like why do you like this kid like why that is the much bigger problem that is the much harder (laughs) question to answer unfortunately yes but again right it's the affection she clearly has love for this kid not Mm -hmm. just this transactive sexual relationship yeah i love that it's existing in this very complicated space i love that it's impossible for us to reduce this down to this is an a b relationship right I love the line that they give him, too, where he says, trust me, you're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to be relieved that I'm not there. And I think, God, I hope so. And that that's the moment where it clicks for her. And she I, obviously, I think that she agrees, She right? hears that because she's capable of listening to him. Mm-hmm. She hears that and agrees with it, mm-hmm. gathers her dignity and leaves. It's, it's terrific. It's terrific. I think she's great. Yeah. Also... I love her fur coat, silk stocking, stiletto look. Like, shut the front door. So good. I know you're eager to jump ahead to get back to New York, as the mm-hmm. film is, too. But we have one more thing to take care of here in Jamaica. We have the scene on the boat with Coughlin. Yes. I, uh, I probably forgot the scene on purpose because I just hate the way that they treat Carrie in this scene. She is just ornamental, and it's it, really unfortunate. She's very exploited. Her scene. climbing down the ladder yes. in the tiny little And then just staying bikini. in focus in the shot yeah. for no reason. This right. is the only time that the cinematography feels to me leery yes. in an unpleasant way. Absolutely so. And you're, you're right. Ultimately, we really don't do a lot of that. But in this scene, we absolutely do, and it's yeah. gross. We do hand her back her power to a certain extent when we Later. get into the third act. But mm-hmm. yeah, right here, this is... Yeah, this is not the film's highest point. No. This is where Coughlin offers Flanagan a job at the bar that he is opening with his wife's money. Sure. Which is maybe like a nice attempt at reconciliation. Mm-hmm. But no, we're going, you know, two roads diverged in the yellow wood, hustler and worker. That's true. And uh, and Flanagan is taking the worker route. Which leads me back to the whole sex worker of it all. Yeah. I'm wondering if he sees it as that or not. That's really interesting. It is both maybe work and the opportunity bit, to work. A little bit right? of both. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
And again, though the pace of the second half of this, the second two thirds of this film is significantly slower and less intentional than the first act, we do still get some nice editing happening here. This hard cut back to Cruz in bed in New York as Bonnie is exercising. <laughs> and he says, every morning. <laughs> like We've clearly been doing this for a little while. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. cute. She's He's, asking for carrot juice. She's great. Just to jump ahead to the point where he is already disenchanted by this arrangement mm -hmm. is pretty good, I think. It is. Yeah. yeah, I agree. That's nice. We get the first sequence of him going to the deli where Jordan is working, but he doesn't have the courage to go in that time. Mm -hmm. We then go, yes, to the the gallery, the exhibition, whatever it is, whatever social event he's accompanying Bonnie yeah, to, yeah. where he behaves so terribly. So much of this is beautifully observed when he gets out of the car with her and she immediately starts chatting with everyone and he pouts and kind of mm -hmm. walks around the group, she calls him back. He obviously thinks that he's about to get introduced. Yep. And she asks him to take her coat. I love it. It's so cool. It is. It's really good. <laughs> it's really well done. Yeah. yeah. It's nice. And then we have the fight with the sculptor who is odious, who is maybe a little overwritten, oh, maybe a little overplayed, True. just maybe a little obvious, mm -hmm. a, a little first draft of that idea. But the shattering of the sculpture, too, is yeah. very strong. Then the scene on the street, their, their breakup scene. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, I'm afraid that we we just discussed we already. We already talked about it, yeah. But that's okay. It's a great moment. Bonnie, yeah. we hardly knew you. You were fantastic. <laughs> yep. The one part of that that we didn't talk about is her hitting him, slapping yes, him. Smacking him right where he just got hit. And then he comes at her as he though to does. strike her. He does. Ultimate low moment for Brian Flanagan. Stamping his foot to like a very over-the-top melodramatic piece of performance mm -hmm. there that, yeah, does seem under-motivated by the story that we have in front of us. It sure makes me not want him to go do what he's going to do next, which is track down Jordan again. I don't want him together with Jordan. I don't want it. Yeah. And again, to Elizabeth Shue's credit, she doesn't appear to want it either. And yet, here's where the script is going to take us. Yeah. yeah. We're going to end up in a pretty bad place. Pretty goddamn bad place. First, though, we've got to endure the scene when he does go to the deli and does meet with her again and sure. has food dumped over him. Because now we're just in a completely different film. Yeah. This is this is not where we started. This is not even quite where we're going to end, yeah. which is going to be a darker-touched film, too. Mm -hmm. This is just a very kind of C-grade rom-com. Yeah, absolutely. And then gets Awful. to close it out by buttoning it with a jaw. I, yeah. I suggest you don't order the specials or whatever the line <laughs> yeah. is. is with a little half smile and a little twinkly glance. Uh, Where terrible. do you think you are, yeah. sir? Also, if you're going to come in to apologize to this girl, start with the apology, not the smarm and snark. I'm going to go one step further. If you're going to come in to apologize to this girl, don't do it when she's not at work. Yes. Completely agree. There it is. Completely agree. Yeah. Ah. Uh. After having food dumped on him, he obviously goes and showers and changes. Sure. And then he's just waiting outside, ready to do a bit for her when she gets off work. Yeah. Also very strange. Yeah. I don't... It works for some reason. I guess yeah. we are about to find out why it works. For some reason. Yeah. is just Just imagine, dear listener, that we are adding <laughs> for some reason to the end of every <laughs> sentence between here and the end of the podcast. Yeah. She takes him back to that apartment. We have the line about the waterfall, which is so great. Yeah, and it's then a great apartment space too. I'm gonna say it's like three levels or something, it's and all those great good. windows yeah. and exposed brick. Yeah. It's like the studio apartment of dreams. It's yeah. well, except that it's in Toronto. Except that it's clearly <laughs> in Toronto. <laughs> I'm sure Toronto's a lovely city. It's just that Toronto not does not look time. like New York. No, it doesn't. That's all it is. It's funny. This is actually a very shady scene because he has. This opportunity first to apologize about Bonnie. Then he tries to explain about Bonnie. And in, in the, the process of explaining, turns it around 
onto Jordan, blaming her for moving too fast in their relationship and claiming that he was spooked. Yep. And not only does she not call that bullshit, right? that turns into an adorable runner all the way to the end uh, of the film. That awful. is not what happened, sir. <laughs> that was not your emotional arc. That is another thing about this character, though, which is like absolutely true. And she does call him out on it, is that he clearly never understands what his feelings are or what he wants and never is able to express them. That's just a part of his character. Does he arc out of it? No, he does not. No, he does not. But it turns out she's pregnant. So, oh, yay. <laughs> I guess now we're going to have some some good old fashioned Irish Catholicism coming into this story. <laughs> or at least that's what you expect, right? Because the right. next sequence is going to see Uncle Pat. Who has nothing to offer? No, he's he's in fact like, oh, this girl left you off the hook. Get a, go away free and clear. Right. Yeah. But that I mean nothing to offer narratively speaking, right? Also narratively he does speaking. not deliver any information no. to Brian Flanagan that is going to change the movement of this plot one iota, not by a half an inch. It's just kind of weird that we take the time to do it and then have to go all the way back to Jordan's apartment in order to discover there. that right. she's not there because oh, it turns out she's super, super wealthy. Yeah, she lives on 65th and Park Avenue. Like Park Avenue. Penthouse yes. butler kind of money. Yes. That's mm -hmm. how much we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, of course they live in the penthouse. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, all just so much. It's so much right here at the end. We absolutely change tones again at this point mm -hmm. when he goes to Jordan's apartment, Jordan, Jordan's parents' apartment, right. I guess. Because now we're in, yeah, we're in a, a drama again. We've moved out yes. of rom-com world yeah. into something that's a now little... much more endless love. Yeah. A little more endless love. Absolutely, mm -hmm. yes. Jordan's father, by the way, is played by the actor Lawrence Luckinbill, who is really notable for three things, I would mm -hmm. say. Has a, a good, solid, decent career stage and screen, but three things of, of real particular interest. The first is that he plays Cybok, Spock's brother, in Whoa. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Okay. The second is that he is married to Lucy Arnaz, the daughter of Lucille Ball. Yeah, okay. And the third is that he is the uncle of the aforementioned Lana and Lily Wachowski. Wow. Yeah. Wild. The okay. Wachowski siblings cool. are the kids of his sister. Okay. Gosh, that's weird. <laughs> what a strange Such link. Such a strange right? small world in Hollywood. <laughs> yes, okay. We get the sequence where he offers Flanagan $10,000 to just get out of Jordan's life. This is so we can now motivate Flanagan to refuse the money, to prove that some things are more important. Definitely weakened by the fact that he has all that money in the bank that he's about to refer to. Like yep. 10 minutes from yep. now, we're going to wind up with that coming into play. Mm -hmm. Plus a loan from his Uncle Pat so that he can also yeah. start this bar. <laughs> the money is not that important, and that's not enough money. Yeah. Is the uh, thing. If we really God. want to make that the focus of his struggle here, mm -hmm. which we shouldn't because it's boring. Like yes. Turning down money is, is not enough narrative stake at this point in the story. But if we're going to do that, then it needs to be more than $10,000, honestly. Yes, I completely agree. Especially since that's obviously the price of this guy's, like, parking. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so he tears up the check. He leaves. And I'm going to say this. Show this film up to this point to 100 people and ask them to predict what will happen in the remaining 18 minutes before the credits start, mm -hmm. and not one person will get it right. Not one person will tell you where the hell this story goes. <laughs> not even in the last act, but in the last chapter. Like, we can't even really meaningfully talk about act structure at this point right. because the film has so desperately lost its way. But things are about to get insane. Flanagan goes to Coughlin's new bar, oh slipping God, by, right. slipping by the bouncers. Coughlin. To bring Coughlin the bottle of Louis XIII cognac that yes. they wagered, mm -hmm. which is a $500 bottle of brandy in 1988. That is a $4,000 bottle of brandy in today's money. Coughlin chats with Flanagan a little in the bar. This 
awful, terrible, obviously very expensive bar set that they have, or bar set that they oh, have yeah. taken over. We get Carrie coming back. We have her kissing Flanagan, crossing the room, kissing this other guy. She's amazing. She's, She's great. great. Yeah. I would like the narrative to follow her at this point. But instead, <laughs> we have to follow assholes. Coughlin onto his gross bougie yacht it's like a schooner <laughs> i think it's, it's a two-masted bad. schooner yeah. well sorry you're the you're the sales sorry. girl yeah i just i also wrote yacht the first time i was like i don't think that is a yacht i, I think, think that's it's a, a two-masted yacht. schooner but anyway i don't really know about these things i just daydream about them a lot this is where we learn that coglin has lost all of the money just just every dollar i i, I guess but not just the dollars that were given to him though yes no this bar? he has taken all of her money and sunk it into commodities because he thought he was smart enough to play the exchanges and he has oh, lost all of the money. Right. That's the she doesn't know it yet. Don't tell her. Yeah. It's not just that he is a failure. It's that he has brought he has her down failed her too. too. Oh, yes. that's better. Yeah. Because of course, I I realized he that. doesn't know anything about running a bar, which on the one hand, sure. obviously not. Yeah. <laughs> Keep making red eyes. Right. Is, is, <laughs> maybe even present something interesting about that intersection of like theory and practice that we were talking about maybe, earlier maybe right yeah. like like he needed to know more not just to do more oh that's true he needed those business classes he needed the actual application of, of knowledge here to move through maybe there's some kind of tension there but also he was running that bar at the beginning of the movie though right like more or less. Or he like he says here the that owner. He's, he says that he's bamboozled by purchasing. Was he not purchasing before? That's and a in good this instance, question. if he doesn't know how to do it, he couldn't hire people to, to do, do it. it? Yeah. I guess he does say that he hires people to do it, right? Because everyone has his hand in his pocket. Oh, so he sure. is hiring people to do the stuff but that he doesn't hiring. know how to yeah. do. But yeah. Okay. Oh. It's it's odd. Yep. So then we have Carrie coming in, wanting to go home. We have Coglin passing out hard i guess mm -hmm. and this is where there was the deleted scene from the trailer oh in this scene as it's presented in the trailer coglin tells flanagan that he hit on jordan oh and that now he doesn't have any friends left and flanagan confirms and says not now for sure or something like that it's just to make it even worse we kind of circle back around to oh. the first beat so then he supposedly breaks this one friendship that he even had yeah. by hitting okay so we really motivate Jeez. instead of just passing out and slipping right. into depression we really motivate it i'm going to guess that they took it out of the movie because they didn't want movie star tom cruise's character to appear culpable in any way for the death of this man he just wasn't there you know he didn't cause it he didn't contribute to his emotional circumstances oh sure by breaking up his one friendship or whatever but yeah it's okay. it's right there in the trailer which is weird. weird yeah that is weird okay odd too that we circle back around to completely replay the the story from coral in the first instance like it, yeah that is interesting potentially because we're almost ascribing to coglin something actively self-destructive that he is yeah. deliberately smashing these relationships in yeah. the same way over and over right but More yeah interesting Without that, we just get, oh, I was too stupid to have money, and now I don't have any money. Yeah. Anyway, I'm a drink of brandy. Flanagan, meanwhile, drives Carrie back to her apartment. She predictably tries to have sex with him. That kiss, I think, is actually quite hot. Yes. That's, yeah. that's a moment right there. Yeah, and I buy him being tempted and then breaking away right. from her, too. For the worst line in the whole movie, I think. I can't make it with my best friend's old lady. I can't make it with my best friend's <laughs> old lady. That's obviously a line that a 23-year-old in 1988 would say. <laughs> what, 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 what are you implying? That he's actually a 45-year-old writer from the Upper East Side? Is that, is that what you're saying? That's what I'm implying. <laughs> <laughs> we also get this oddly incomplete beat at the end here where she accuses him of being scared, which 
at this point in the film, you should be trying to close off your your narrative loops yeah. so that you can offer some catharsis and some resolution. But that's yeah. not. He's not scared. <laughs> he's never been scared. He doesn't have enough self awareness to be scared. Oh my god! But th- I like her, where she's just like, so I'm expected to be with this one man forever, and he's like, yeah, it's what marriage is. Yeah. I'm like, according she's to like, whom? No, that's I think I'm no. going to go and have a poly adventure. Yeah. Good for you. I'm definitely going to blame everything that just happened with my company on my deceased husband. As you should. It was <laughs> his co- fault. <laughs> live yeah. my life as a merry widow. I love that. Do I it. would f- I would pick up with, with cocktail too. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Carrie's gold. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. We then cut to a, a, another gorgeous shot. We haven't really talked enough about the cinematography in this film because we do occasionally get some really beautiful pieces of, of cinema here we get this gorgeous like misty morning shot of flanagan walking back to the yacht walking mm-hmm. toward the camera and then yeah suddenly an unexpectedly harrowing and traumatic vision of, yes. of a dead Coglin. yes who has sliced his own throat with the broken bottle echoing is, the confrontation yes. back in the cell block bar earlier yes. in the story is yeah. in a pool of very sticky blood that brian flanagan just sticks his whole hand just his into. whole hand in just his whole yeah. hand that's how you get charged with murder son uh, that's, what are you doing it's very important as all bartenders know it's very important to enact the metaphor he has blood on his <laughs> on hands, his hands. <laughs> Jesus Christ. that's the only thing that a bartender <laughs> poet philosopher king can do you have to enact the metaphor. Oh, it's it's awful. weak. It's it's it's, it's so a weak bad. resolution to yeah. yeah, and horrifying at the same time. Yeah, yeah. from another movie, a much again right yeah another movie. tonal shift yeah. there. Flanagan rushes to Jordan's apartment. We get this slipping into the elevator. We get pushing past the butler. It all becomes weirdly like physical and confrontational now through the mm-hmm. end of the film, which I'm Very. not crazy about. He tells her that Doug is dead. Much to her credit, it doesn't take her any time at all to remember who Doug was. That's impressive. I would maybe, Doug. Doug. Oh, I met him one afternoon at that bar. Right. Okay, sure. And in another twist, in another, not a twist, a turn of Mm -hmm. this film's intent, apparently the problem this whole time was that Brian was too proud. Apparently that's the yeah, lesson he's going to learn sure. from Doug's too death proud to is not for to be too proud to ask. No, not ask for help. Too, too proud to say that you love To someone. say that you need help. No, that was it. That was it? Yeah. Needs he also can't what? communicate. Yeah. But what does he need help with though? Nothing. I don't understand. Nothing. <laughs> the film understands that we need some kind of emotional resolution here. We haven't oh, done anything awful. to set it up and we have not changed him. Yeah. So we're just going to say some stuff. Yeah. We're just going to say, he gets the long, uh, Jordan, now you can marry me. I've overcome my fear of clowns. You had a fear of clowns? <laughs> yeah, no, this whole, this whole time, it hasn't come up. It's not been relevant. It won't be relevant in the next 20 years of our life together. But let me promise you, oh, I'm a better man now. Awful. Nothing. Nothing awful. there. And then just a weird, ugly, physical confrontation yeah. with the, the doorman the and, doorman the, butler and both, the butler. Like, yeah. They grab Jordan twice mm-hmm. and Flanagan justifiably the first time scream she's pregnant (laughs) don't grab this also don't grab this woman yeah but also this woman has a baby on board (laughs) and this is again the moment where she does leave with him in the elevator but she looks miserable she looks like her life is over and she says to her dad i love him i have to go and you really do see this like I wish it wasn't so behind her eyes. So in this moment, Elizabeth, she works for me. But maybe I just really want it. I, I think you're maybe wanting that. I don't think the film feels that way oh, at all. God. Yeah. Well, that's what I want. Yeah. And as we mentioned, we have Cruz 
interpositioning himself there. We have Flanagan, sorry, interpositioning yes. himself there in that final moment of emotional reckoning with her father. <laughs> it's it's really tough. But then we cut yeah. to a couple of epilogues, I guess. The first at Uncle Pat's bar where uh, Flanagan and Jordan are married. Yes. And everything's celebratory and wonderful. And, then and suddenly they're good dancers. That's nice. Suddenly they're good. They are better <laughs> dancers now. That's true. Although it's still not good, maybe. Oh, it's darling. It looks a lot of fun. <laughs> we then cut ahead to the opening of Flanagan's Cocktails and Dreams, which is very bad. Yes. And he gives an impromptu poem right there on the bar. I have forgotten up until this point about the whole bartender poet thing. And yet here it comes again. Because yeah. we haven't done it in a no. full hour. <laughs> a full hour. So he delivers a very terrible poem. and uh, it is, It's consistently terrible. Consistently at least. terrible. Yeah. And then exactly. promises that he's not going to get spooked again because right. that was really the emotional problem at the heart of it. You, you remember how he got spooked that time and how that explains <laughs> that all of his yeah. behavior and it was her Definitely. fault. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Twins. Twins, it turns out it's twins. Yeah. I don't understand what this movie thinks it is. It's not that thing. That's absolutely the problem. Yeah. And that, I think, is why the film has the reputation that it does. Yes. We talked recently about the cinema score metric, that people are asked upon leaving the theater oh. to grade movies on a scale yeah. of A to F. And that is supposed to be some kind of spontaneous crowdsourced feedback on the quality of the movie. And it's not. Because, It's yeah. just crowdsourced feedback on the quality of the ending. Mm -hmm. It is just measuring that moment of emotional catharsis that you have when you leave the theater or the absence of that moment or, of emotional right, catharsis. Yeah. Films with a bleak ending get very bad cinema scores, even if they then receive good critical acclaim and good commercial results. This film ends so badly <laughs> and so yeah. dispiritingly yeah. that it makes you forget how good that first oh, act is oh, and how yeah. fun much of this film is. It absolutely does not deserve its reputation. But it's also not in very real and structural ways good. <laughs> in any way good, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a conundrum after everything. It is still, after we've just watched it and spent the better part of two hours talking about it, <laughs> still a conundrum. Yeah. Where does this sit for you then on the big list. Let's yeah. let's do this formally, I suppose, rather right, than informally. Right. Let's, we have to put this on the list of every Tom Cruise movie ever. Let's maybe start with last week's effort, which was also a film yeah. with a strong first act that loses its way and loses its sense of itself. Yeah. Let's start with The Color of Money. No, I think you're right about it being similar to The Color of Money. Like once you said that, you know, it was almost going to be a follow-up with Paul Newman. Like I can see that definitely, including like the gr grittier, grimier aspects of it and the fact that I just don't like these two men. Yeah, that, that kind of just becomes the same film. Yeah, right? It becomes yeah. very, very close to The Color of Money if you put Newman in that totally. role. Totally. But then the high points remind me of the fun parts of Risky Business. And then, of course, the, like, sex work of it all also, I guess, we just talked about. So for, for right now, I am having it right around Risky Business and Color of Money, which we have around the same places. I think we have Risky Business at number four and, and Color, the Color of Money, of Money at five. At yeah, I'm finding myself in a weird place where maybe I like this more than Risky Business, but not as much as Color of Money, which is mathematically impossible. <laughs> mathematically impossible. <laughs> I think the important thing to remember is that Risky Business is as high as it is on the list because of its iconicity. Right. Because that is the film that makes Tom Cruise a star, at least for the first phase of his career. Sure. We don't get his real big successes without that film setting something of a template for his on-screen persona. Sure. So we give that film extra credit for being important <laughs> more than just good, which I think allows us to reconcile its position above the color of money. For me, it's all about the performances. 
Mm. Paul Newman is so good in The Color of Money, he but is. he is it's also true. carrying almost so all the weight. weight. Yeah. Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio is fantastic. I think the Cruise performance is pretty solid, mm -hmm. but they are much smaller performances. In this, we have a much more developed ensemble, and all of the women are good. How often yeah. can you say that about That's a true. Tom Cruise film? Yeah. Would you be putting it then between Color of Money and Risky Business? I think that's my pitch. I can also see it going below the Color of Money, but above yeah. All the Right Moves. I, I think All the Right Moves is definitely our floor. Yeah. I think Risky Business no, I liked it. is our ceiling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I... Although, I'm going to be completely honest here. Mm -hmm. If you came out and said, no, I like this better than Risky Business, it should go in at the new number yeah. four, then I might I honestly I go for that too. Yeah. In that case, I think definitely between... Risky business and color of money. There I think it is. I would be, I, I, that's the order in which I would want to watch them again. The thing about the color of money is that it was just no fun at all ever. And this movie was at least fun sometimes. Yeah, I think the color of money was, I, I found the color of money to be a little more fun, at least in its first. We had okay. two brothers and a stranger. That was fun. Yeah. There was some good stuff there. But you're right. This is obviously more fun. Yeah. And the fact that it hangs together less well than the color of money is maybe less harmful to it. Because yeah. it's just not as important. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a strange one. It's a conundrum for sure. But yes, absolutely does not deserve a place right at the bottom of this list. I think there's no way that no, it's... No, I would agree. Yeah, 9% under losing it is insane. No, yeah. Rotten Tomatoes. You're just being mean. Well, I love that. We'll put it in at the new number five on the list. Exactly okay. the midpoint in our list. Okay, that feels right. Feels me. appropriate, yeah. right? <laughs> And that is going to do it for our discussion of Cocktail. I am glad to say thank you, Elizabeth, that I've had a lot more fun talking about this film than I feared that I would. I thought <laughs> yeah. this was going to be a bit more of a dire march to the end. Yes. But, you know, there are high points. And we sometimes yeah. you, sometimes you have to make your own fun. When the filmmaker <laughs> won't do it for you, you have to take responsibility. Everything that we do here at The Last Star in Hollywood, of course, is only possible because of the generous support of our wonderful patrons. Elizabeth, I'm going to ask you in a moment to thank our superstar patrons mm -hmm. and, of course to offer them a cocktail. Which classic cocktail <laughs> would you give to our wonderful superstar patrons? If only you could. If only we had some means of transmitting cocktails through the yes, internet. Yes, yes. Uh, okay, well, let's see. I think, per our earlier discussion, I would do a Corpse of Iron number two because it's such a classic. You really have to be at a pretty well-established cocktail bar to get it. You can't just get mm -hmm. it anywhere because it has some unusual ingredients, especially the Coqui Americano. Uh, can it you has give us your build of a Corpse of Iron number two? Specs? Yeah. Sure I can. Yeah. So uh, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, a quarter of an ounce of simple syrup, we're going to do an ounce of gin. I would. I usually use Bombay Sapphire, but a London dry gin. Three quarters of an ounce of orange liqueur. Three quarters of an ounce of Cokey Americano. A dash of orange bitters. And just a splash, like a little, not even a bar spoonful, but just even, it, it depends on how you want to do it. I use an eyedropper, but anyway, just a, a whisper of absinthe. Uh, and yeah, that gets shaken and double strained. And then it gets a... Orange zest, which is expressed and then cut into a perfect rectangle. You float that on top in a coupe and you get one drop of absinthe on each corner of the orange peel. So it's very sophisticated. It's so beautiful. It's very precise. It's 1.55 in the afternoon and I want one of those right now. <laughs> well, the thing is that because of the orange liqueur and because of the lemon juice and even the little bit of the simple syrup, even though you've got the Coqui Americano, which is more like an herbaceous botanical, and the absinthe, with, which has that like licorice thing that some people are kind of turned off by. Sure. Those are really well balanced, so the whole thing just feels kind of 
juicy and refreshing. It does kind of wake you up. The little bit of absinthe just makes it sexy and different and sophisticated and a little bit like there's just a little bit of a speed bump on it, which I kind of like, actually. Oh, yeah. You yeah. Just I mean? a little bit of friction so you can feel it. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's the one. Yeah. Corpse Survivor, number two. And to whom would you be offering these Corpse I would Survivors? Be offering it. Yes. <laughs> yes. To the delightful Leslie Skipa, to Louise in Dallas. Megan Louder and Phoebe, enjoy your Corpse Survivors. You're going to love them. Thank you all so much. If you ever find yourselves here in the middle of Oklahoma, let us know. We will find you a place where you can get (laughs) a Corpse Survivor number two. That is going to do it for this week. Next week, we have the second of Cruise's 1988 movies, the highest grossing movie of the year, and the most successful Tom Cruise movie in history, according to the Academy Awards. We're going to be talking about Barry Levinson's Rain Man. That's coming up next week. Until then, take care. Cheers.